So I literally grab my camera, don't have time to put my vest back on it, and I'm running down the corridor, and then I hear this truck. ISIS had taken our very large truck and stuffed it full of explosives, and it was too big to get down the street, and it was reversing back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and eventually it got down the street, and it detonated right outside our house. So I remember going down this corridor and being thrown through the air, and then just being basically like partially buried under a collapsing house. I remember the bricks slamming into the back of my head, And it got to the point of pain where it's like, this literally can't hurt anymore. What I didn't realise is there was shrapnel going under my scalp. The truly special guests just keep on coming. I'm so delighted with the types of fascinating people that have agreed to come on the show of late. And this week is no exception with Joshua Baker, who is simply one of the most impressive journalists out there working today. You may know him from his current podcast series with the BBC, I'm Not a Monster, or his related documentary, Return from ISIS. The two follow his attempts to track down and understand Samantha, the woman who took her family to live with ISIS in Syria. If you've not yet listened to I'm Not a Monster, do give it a go. It's incredible from the start. I remember listening to the first episode just a month or so ago and I was walking in the snow in Berlin and it was minus 15 degrees and I stayed out longer in such extreme conditions, freezing, just so I could reach the end of the first episode. That's how riveting it is. It begins by explaining minute by minute what it was like for Joshua to be attacked and bombed by ISIS fracturing his back in an explosion that left nothing of an entire street and tore down the entire house in which he was temporarily residing. Then we hear audio footage of a young American boy being taught to assemble and use a suicide bomb. The kid explains how he had been taught to lure American soldiers by asking for their help before pulling the string. Now, I didn't want to go into too much detail because I want you to be able to listen to this full podcast without any real spoilers, and to then be able to really enjoy I'm Not a Monster afterwards. I was also really fascinated by Joshua from a journalistic point of view, because the one thing I always said was that I'll do anything for journalism and documentaries and stuff. And and I've done some stuff in dangerous places, places that, you know, I, I, I shudder to think of now. But I would never go anywhere near ISIS or anyone who might behead me. To me, it's just not worth the game. So we talk a lot in this one about his experience literally being blown up by ISIS, surviving by the skin of his teeth, and then what it means to be doing this kind of journalism. That said, we do talk a bit towards the end about the characters in the series, so I'll give you a little rundown now without any real spoilers, all stuff you know from the beginning of episode one. Sam, or Samantha, is an American mother who took her kids to Syria and wants to come back. She claims she was tricked into going there by her husband Musa, but Joshua doesn't entirely trust her, as her story doesn't always check out. Joshua goes to Syria, goes back and forward all the time, gets into all sorts of trouble. It's so dangerous. Among the many people Joshua manages to track down in the series is a woman called Suad, who was bought as a slave by Sam and Musa during their time in Syria. And Suad actually speaks nicely about Sam. So it's one of those where you don't know who to trust and every episode springs a new surprise on you. I would thoroughly recommend it. 
There is about nine minutes of bonus chat in this episode for patrons. You can get that on patreon.com slash andrewgold. I'll try to get Josh to come on my weekly Discord chat room event. They've been great so far. It's just a chat room, like in the 90s. You'll find the link in the show notes Thursday at 8 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, you know, UK time, and just work out what time that is for you. And we just chat to people on there for an hour or two. Follow Joshua on Twitter or Instagram on at Josh Baker Film and find I'm Not a Monster on whatever podcast platform you use. By the way, for the first few minutes, Josh didn't have his microphone recording. Um, and I've left that in there because it's quite interesting hearing the difference between uh, you know, an average normal microphone, as you'll hear for the first few minutes, and once Josh turns his Zoom microphone on. Um, and suddenly you go from like into like hello, I am talking properly. You'll see what I mean. It's it's, it's great. We're just going to start now with Joshua talking about how his team sent him little cutouts and clips from the hours and hours of recording that he's done, where he said funny or ridiculous things. Whoever send me like things I've said where I've gone off on a massive swearing tangent because I can't read something or there's one which is just like god I'm in a really bad mood and they just send it to me sometimes every now and again they had a lot of fun I and mean, we've been doing the project for so long now that we're quite good friends so it's, it's beneficial you have been doing it a long time when you started it did you have the backing which I've, I've, I've segued into professional questions segue away when... don't worry <laughs> yes. I'll, it probably won't stay very professional for very long but I'll, I'll do good. my best I'll try good I don't, mate. We've had a psychopath on here. I've had a, I've had a <laughs> great. I had a paedophile. I had a paedophile on one time as well. Oh Jesus! Yeah, yeah. Eighteen-year-old uh, head boy of his school. So it doesn't have to stay super professional if you don't if you don't want it to. But not not that it should go into the subjects they were talking. It's Basically, that, so. great, amazing. I will, I, <laughs> yeah. will, I will try and. Who knows which Josh you're going to get? You'll get AJ. Exactly right. Um, speaking of my seg, yeah, my segue was what was my hmm. segue? I said I've been doing it for ages, and you said you have, ha, and you then, have. Uh, and then we talked about paedophiles and psychopaths. Yeah, that was my. We're doing well, you and I together, aren't we? It's like two people who clearly struggled to stay on a, a fix. Yeah. This is going to be great. I'm enjoying this. We've got to make. We've got to make a documentary together. Um, yeah. We'll make. <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. You've doesn't just, matter. You've gone on lots of tangents. It's modern um, art, post postmodern. I like it. Um, when you started. Mm. Did you have the backing of the BBC, or how did it come to fruition? You know, was it was it you on your own, or what what happened? I mean, so it starts with. I mean, it really, 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 really starts way back in like November 2016 when I get um, blown up by ISIS, and uh, I was very lucky, very lucky to survive that. And and unlike a lot of people on the street where I was blown up, you know, I had a a route out and a way to go and get medical attention but that sort of event as well as just being absolutely mental um set in train just like the way life works a chance meeting with an old contact who i'd lost touch with who had only reached out because he'd heard i'd been blown up and i remember going um speaking to him and he said well can we meet for a coffee so i went for a coffee for him in central london went for tea and scones how english and yeah, I remember being on this chair and I had a broken back and I'm full of shrapnel. I'm just trying to get comfy. And I'm kind of like, I, it's really nice to see this dude, but I'm in pain and I kind of just want to be in pain. Um, and we got chatting. It was really lovely. And then just in passing, he mentions um, 
oh yeah, there's this American family and they're trapped in Raqqa with ISIS and then like goes to move on. I'm like, wait, what? what? Just slow, what's that thing you just said? And he goes, yeah, no, I've, 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 I'm aware of this family. And he takes out his phone from his pocket and he plays me a video with a young boy, um, Matthew, young American kid, being forced to build a suicide bomb. And it wasn't like an ISIS propaganda video, as we'd come to expect at that point. It was, this was something different. It, was like, it had like a home video texture to it. So I was like, what is going on here? And I found myself in this weird sense of these two parallels of having just lived through a suicide bombing and recovering from one, and then seeing a kid being essentially from the out, from the outside look like being groomed to carry out. Oh, what's happened there? Can you not see me? Oh, it's it's just stopped recording on my side. Yeah. Is that you really probably you've run out of you? have you run out of uh, space? Apparently, it's a BBC oh laptop. My. God, you're supposed to be a documentary. It's it's not if it if you've got nothing to record it on, it's not the worst thing in the world. It just the zoom the zoom quality is fine, but you know I'm just trying to make it as much possible. Those production it's, values. That's uh, what it's about. That's, that's what separates it from the other rubbish podcasts. Uh, but loads uh, of people just don't. You know, a lot of people I speak to don't have the stuff. You know, so hold that thought. Hold that. You've got a zoom thought. there. Hold that thought. Musical. Oh, it's going to up the quality now, isn't it? If you do it on a Zoom thing. Yeah, do you want me to stay with this, or do you want me to botch the Zoom in? What would you prefer? Whatever's going to be better quality, to be honest. What, what you, you know more than me. I mean, I, do I don't this. know much. Let's see yeah. if this works. I mean, cool. Wait, let's Zoom. Wedge this here into the desk. Hmm. Yeah, so we could always do... try it. I mean, because because worst case, I've got I've got this Zoom. As in the the video call. One two one two. Nobody uses that as a sound test. Why have I started saying that? Uh, we want. We don't want that one. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. That's worked out well for you. What, Great. What, yeah, it's lovely. We just up the quality. What um? What was I saying? Uh, Where were you? Depressing. Uh, oh, so mm-hmm. yeah, no. So young boy being forced to build a bomb. And I've obviously just lived through a suicide bombing, seeing him living through a suicide bombing. So, so seeing him being groomed to carry out an attack is like, what, what, what's going on here? Um, and I sort of just became fixated really idealistically on, well, I'm going to find this kid. I mean, which when you say in that context, it's like, uh, have you lost your mind? The kid is in Syria with ISIS in Raqqa and yeah. you're going to find him, are you? Um but I became obsessed. So initially, I to answer your original question, initially I had no backing. Um, yeah. And for like a, about six weeks, two months, I, um, I, I sort of just like started doing the research and started trying to work out, you know, is this legitimate or is this some sort of mental con? And uh, the more I looked, the more it was like, wow, this is really standing up. And then I went into the BBC who are incredibly sceptical and basically said, all right, go to America and prove it. And so I did. I went to America and I, I met with the lady's sister, Laurie, mm. uh, Sam's sister, Laurie, who Sam is the mother who the, the podcast series is about. And um, she read me an email that she got from her sister where these videos had come from, this video of her, her niece, her nephew being forced to build a, a bomb. Uh, which was basically a message from her sister who she hadn't seen for two years saying, I need your help. I've been brought here and I'm trapped. I've got to get out of here. Please, God, help me. 
And that for me was the start of sort of like a four year journey, really. And then for the next year, almost a year, eight months, it wasn't ever fully commissioned. It was always like, oh, just do a little bit more, keep it going, just do a little bit more. So it was it was this this scenario of I'm freelance, you know, having to do other work and fit it in around things and just keep the ball moving. And to be honest, the whole project's been like that to some degree because it's been going on for so long. Um, and then in November 2017, I'm standing on a ladder uh, at my dad's business, helping him renovate it. And I'm cutting a hole in the ceiling. And I have this routine of sort of... Um, trawling ISIS sites, trawling Twitter and looking for any sign I can about this family because I knew they were in Raqqa. I knew roughly where they were in Raqqa, but we hadn't heard anything from them for a while. And I remember looking on Twitter and just seeing this video. I mean, literally just like this, just seeing this video while standing on a ladder. I had I'd taken a break, so I had tea in one hand, phone in the other. And Sam, or someone who looked like Sam, was being filmed escaping ISIS territory with her family. And I was like, oh my God. So within that, I got on the phone to the US network frontline. I got on the phone to the BBC and I was like, they're out. You need to send me to Syria. Um, And within about, uh, I think, I can't remember, it was a couple of weeks, we'd pulled it all together and I went and it took me 10 days of searching and then I found Sam and the family. So from that point onwards, it was a commissioned project, um, but it would be on and off. We would have these bouts of me working and we'd shut it down and then we'd have bouts and so on and so forth. And I'd go off and do other projects in between. Um, and it took me a year. It wasn't until I think 2019 that the podcast got commissioned. So it grew as, started as one film, then became two films, then became a 10 part podcast series and two films. And now it's that plus like a 10,000 word essay that I'm doing at the moment where wow. I'm just sort of like... Uh, need a break <laughs> just getting um, it all out haven't slept in four years man it's it just shows though and i think it shows to anyone listening who's got aspirations to make something it shows how hard it is because i was listening a lot of the time and i and i think i think every documentary maker will relate to this it's like it's it's impossible to get a commission it's just the most impossible thing ever in the world to get commissions unless mm. you are a huge huge name and even they struggle so i listened to the whole podcast series which i loved i watched return to isis as well and i was watching it thinking ah this this is what you need to get a commission fairly simply you need you need a story this good and as you're telling me even that was not simple no i mean you're completely right i mean it's such a competitive and hard industry um that even i mean the amount of times you know this story in this podcast i was told you know it's not going to work we've got to cancel it or you know i don't think it's it's what you think it is or this is never going to happen i mean like like i said a year to get the podcast commissioned when i always knew that it would be a fantastic podcast series um i I kind of to some degree the more i looked into it realized that it would be easier to tell this as a podcast in audio than it was ever going to be to tell it in film because you know as you well know film you have a time limit right you've got you know in the uk sense we've got like 58 30 in the front line i think we've got like 51 15 it's some odd time so how do you tell four years of uh, a really complex story where you don't know if somebody's telling the truth or not and you don't know and there's so much you have to explore within it um in 58 minutes so yeah 
we did it and the film is good and it's true and it's not like it's um a different story to the podcast but what the podcast allows us to do is get into all of these mad cul-de-sacs or mad things where you know it's just i'll give you an example in in episode two of, of i'm not a monster um Laurie, Sam's sister, is put in touch with a supposed people smuggler. Now, ultimately, that conversation doesn't go anywhere. So in the film, it doesn't really help us. It doesn't further our journey. It's just a waste of those minutes. Whereas in the podcast series, it's like, this is like half an episode of madness and the FBI are involved and it's horrible and then it's funny and it's absurd and it's three people and, and it just becomes this whole thing. So it's such a liberating medium. I tell you what as well, I also think back over my career and I think, God, if I had just been doing audio, the people I would have got to speak to me <laughs> and the places I would have got into. Yeah. It's just, so it's a, it's a different beast altogether. It's wonderful. Yeah. I totally understand that. And I was thinking, I was, one of my next questions was going to be, do you find the podcast medium more more liberating? And you've just said it, it was. 100%. Because, yeah, I mean, watching, watching the film, and it's a beautiful film, uh, Return to ISIS, and that's the thing with film you're under so much pressure to make everything beautiful all the time that i think i guess is that what it is is that the apart from the length as well as you were saying is that one of the reasons you can't really have and then we went to do this and it didn't happen and then with a podcast it's a lot of fun it really felt like we were part of the investigation with you as a documentary we were watching a shiny beautiful thing in a different way totally agree with you i mean it's sort of I said like some of the stuff that's most fascinating about the podcast is like just the how. So, you know, in the film, it's like, okay, uh, and here I am. I finally negotiated access to Sam in the podcast. It's like I spent 10 days walking around Syria, like sneaking onto military bases, being chased by a monkey, not sleeping, um, surviving off this weird energy drink called Tiger that nobody knows what's in it. And just... (laughs) uh, I mean, I, I probably shouldn't bring this up, but fuck it. There's like, there's a great bit where like, um, I haven't slept for like probably seven days properly at this point because even in the hotel we're staying in, like, I'm getting up in the middle of the night to do security checks. I'm like, constantly trying to work out the next way to find Sam. So I'm absolutely knackered and I look terrible. And my uh, real dear friend, who was my teammate on that first hit in Syria, is a guy called Magris, and there was a point where we pulled the van over at the side of the road uh, because I need to pee. And he just turns on the camera and films this big wide. And he hasn't realized that I'm also wearing my radio mic of me standing there having a pee with a cigarette, which I don't even smoke. So suddenly I've started smoking a coffee in one hand and cigarette and just urinating. And I go, Oh my God, this is better than sex. And the whole thing's recorded. And he sent it to my podcast producer being like, we should totally put this in. I was just like, you bastard. Those are the things you cannot ever. Was that in? I don't remember that bit. No, it wasn't. It definitely was not in. It's definitely (laughs) never going in. Uh, But it was, it's, it's like, so the reason I bring that up is because obviously that's an extreme version, but you can kind of get into the reality of what it's like to actually try and do things in these places because so much in film, everything is polished and you just see the final refined thing. Sometimes it's a little less, but we can, there's an honesty to podcasts, which I think is really beautiful. I mean, that's an extreme example that I'm never going to put in a series, but that ilk of like, 
it is really tiring or it's really dangerous mm-hmm. or you're having this mad conversation where you're like, how am I in this situation? And that's all great colour for a podcast series. I can tell as well you're quite funny. Um, you have a sense of humour. It comes across... Unhinged. <laughs> you're, you're, you're funny and unhinged. <laughs> it comes across in the series. But that that's a very British type of humour, I would say. Of course, you, I mean, not just British. I mean, it's the Flight of the Concords did a lot of that. It's New Zealand. It's everywhere. It's everyone's humour, um, which is looking at sort of the, the mundane and the, the things like having a piss. Hey, it's our, it's our humour. Yeah. No. It's no. ours. It's ours. I'm a staunch Brexiteer. It's, it's, I'm not. But it's, uh, no offence to Brexiteers out there. All yeah. the political opinions are, are considered. Um, I'm not. Uh, but no, it's, uh, <laughs> I've dug a hole here. Where does he go from yeah. here? How does he get out of this one? Uh, anything you want me to take out, I can take it out. Just add more in. Just add it all in. <laughs> um, uh, I think there is a certain like journalistic humor that exists when you do a certain type of work, which is it's it's kind of gallows humor, but it's sort of that mixed with um just the absurdity of situations you find yourself in. You either gotta kind of laugh about it or go slightly mad, and I rather laugh. Yeah, because that's well. There's that thing, isn't it? It was you know you go through so much shit, you just sort of have to laugh. It's that kind of humor. I guess I guess a lot of a lot of people have that kind of humor that's what i think about that speaking of of things that i mean you, you can't too too much to laugh at i suppose i mean wh- what you were saying before why were you um in this explosion that and you got a fractured bone in your back why were you there and what did that feel like uh, oh god it's mad um so i was basically i was working for um the guardian and pbs frontline who are an american network and i was embedded. I basically pitched a film about Mosul, which was Iraq's second largest city that in 2014 that was taken over by ISIS. You know, when we think about terrorist organizations and Al Qaeda and things like that historically, they don't typically control humongous swathes of land. And ISIS were able to control an area the size of Great Britain with 10 million people under its control at the height of their power. And they took Mosul and it was this big thing where how the Iraqi army dealt with Mosul was going to have so much of an impact on um, the future of that country because of, uh, you know, sectarianism, so many different things. So I was like, we've got to make a film about this. We have to, we've got to get on it. So I worked with an Iraqi journalist and we were able to embed ourselves with Iraqi special forces. Now, we there was this colonel essentially who really wanted us to come in and see the reality of what was going on and the narrative of the day was that they were kicking isis's butt that isis were on the run and they were doing a great job within not very long of being on the ground it seemed like that was a bit of an exaggeration and you know the first day we tried to go into mosul bear in mind we've been invited by this this senior special forces bloke um we're stopped and we're stopped by the Americans and everyone's brought back to this sort of place on the edge of the city. You can hear the fighting in the distance, but it's like no media are going in anymore. And we're like, hmm. And so the colonel's like, well, that's not happening. So he was like, drive to this road and wait. So we drive down these sort of, literally, as you would imagine, war-torn, empty, desolate houses, you know, rubble everywhere, no one around. We're like, where are we going? And this pickup truck pulls in front of us. And it's like, follow this truck. So we follow this truck. 
and we pull in at this hangar, we get way through all these checkpoints, we pull in at this hangar and they start loading ammunition onto the back of this truck and they're like, follow this truck and we're like, okay, fine. And we come down this, we're getting closer and closer to Mosul and we come down this sort of gravelly track and I can see there's a Humvee in front of me and there's a guy throwing these boxes, just throwing them. I'm like, what's he throwing into the back of the Humvee? And I get out and I walk around and I realise he's throwing ammunition and mortar rounds into the back of the thing. I'm like, I am not going anywhere near this dude. What? He's mad. And then I'm quickly told, actually, if I want to go into Mosul, the only way is to hop in this thing because they need to sneak me in as part of an ammo supply run. So the team and I, we're sort of like, okay, so we have two options. We either leave or we get involved and we go this way. And if we leave, we've kind of got to find our own way out. So that didn't seem like the safest thing. So we're like, fine, we'll go in, we'll have an escort. 15 minutes later, we're ambushed by ISIS and we're sat in this Humvee with bullets bouncing off. And it's just like, and then we finally get out of that and make it to the Colonel. And he's just like, the narrative that you guys know of 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 ISIS are... um, being defeated here is is total crap we are we are really struggling you know they're they're good fighters we're we're trying and we're doing well but this is not an easy fight and people should know this um and then that night we pull back off the line where he is and we go to a house that's um sort of i've been told it's it's where they've made a base it's about a mile from the front line so it's quite far back and a local dude just basically says look come spend the night on my floor and we're like oh, fantastic and they sent a couple of soldiers to to sleep in the same room with us to keep us safe neither of them brought their guns which was great so i was more armed than them with my little tiny swiss army knife i was just like could we, if you protect me can you please please bring a gun and then i i got a really good night's sleep to be honest with you and <laughs> i was i was out i was snoring my correspondent hated me because between the gunfire and my snoring he couldn't sleep but the <laughs> next morning i woke up and there was the sound of um, gunfire outside, and the radio operator had come and he tried to wake the captain up, and the captain basically said, "F off, mate. I need I need sleep." And then he went away, and then ten minutes later he came back. It's like I really need you to get up. So we knew something was up, and I went to the front of the house, and the type of gunfire was um, five five six, which is the caliber of the bullet that American weapons use, and our guys were trained by the Americans, armed by the Americans. And I could hear lots of 556 five, fire, but I couldn't hear anything either coming back, any bullets coming this way, any snapping or cracking. And I couldn't hear the sound of what ISIS would typically be using, which is like a AK-47, which is a larger calibre bullet. It's louder. So when you spend enough time in these environments, you learn, you start to learn what these sounds sound like because it's a way of keeping you safe. And I couldn't hear it. So I was like, this doesn't make sense in my head. And I said to Haith, my correspondent, it's like, would you go and see what they're shooting at? I don't, it's, this sounds a bit weird. And while he was doing that, I was taking off my thermal vest that I'd slept in. So I had my body armor here and my camera here. I was just changing the camera battery. I was taking my vest off. And then Haith comes running back in and he goes, Mufakako, Mufakako, which is car bomb, car bomb. So I literally grab my camera, don't have time to put my vest back on it. And I'm running down uh, the corridor. And then I hear this truck coming down the street. And basically what had been happening is ISIS had uh, taken an articulated lorry, a very large truck um, with a red container on the back of it and stuffed it full of explosives. And it was too big to get down the street. And it was reversing back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And eventually it got down the street and it detonated right outside our house. 
So I remember going down this corridor and being thrown uh, through the air and then just being basically like partially buried under a collapsing house. The whole front section of the house collapsed. And um, then there was just a long period of sort of... I remember the bricks slamming into the back of my head and it got to the point of pain where it's like this literally can't hurt anymore. I could just... you, You couldn't... Uh, hurt and I, what I didn't realize is there was shrapnel going under my under my scalp um yeah it was, it was really grim and then uh then it sort of just stopped and there was you know noise and sound of burning and things like that and the sound of burning the sound of fire um and gradually this sort of beam of light started to appear and the room I'd got into had managed to stay up the front section of it had collapsed onto us but the, the structure, luckily, thank God, had managed to stay up. But the, the fr- whole front of the house where I'd left my body up was just gone. It was a pile of rubble. Um, that room and the stairs that would take us upstairs was still standing. We were so lucky, but we were trapped. Um, while all this is going on, just to throw in a light to side to it, my fixer has picked this exact moment. My fixer's like a local journalist who was working with us to help us and works as a translator, but also helps with the story and so on and so forth. He um, he decided this was the moment to take a pee. The gunfire outside is the moment that you go to the loo. So he'd gone into the the toilet outside, which is like kind of like an addition, uh, old-fashioned outhouse, metal door, concrete box, and he's having a pee. Bomb goes off. Blast wave comes down the corridor or outside the house, smashes the door against him and slams it shut. He pees all over his leg. And then he's just like, obviously in a state of shock, doesn't know what to do. So sort of just puts his hand against the door and just stays there for like 10 minutes while we're all being buried and what have you. Eventually, the way he tells it is he just calmed himself down and he opened the door and there's dust and rubble in this corridor, and he goes to step out, and an air conditioning unit, all the houses sort of in Iraq typically have these big, not all, but many houses have these big air conditioning units bolted to the side of the building, just fell off. The moment he decided to step out, it fell off and landed in front of him, would have killed him, so he just shut the door again, and just stayed there in this total shock. So Paul Abdullah went from this point of being like, I just want to have a pee before we start the day, to wetting himself, almost being killed by an air conditioning unit ending up covered in dust and then eventually managing to sort of like crawl his way out and come and help us um it was just for him he had no idea what had happened and was incredibly disorientated but i remember then at that same moment i was sort of trying to pull myself together and get myself out of the rubble and just shouting abdullah at the top of my voice because i was really terrified i'd lost my team you know i knew where haith was and when abdullah walked in completely dazed to where we were i was like thank god and it was this pure moment of joy for me because you know you the idea that i could have lost one of my team was was really tough and then began digging through the rubble in a state of shock trying to find my camera and the first thing i find are are people that have been buried under the rubble somehow i'm on top of them so i'm pulling them out luckily they're still alive and then eventually we sort of realize we have to get out iraqi special forces are trying to get in to help us because the building's on fire so we go up these stairs and there's a sort of bedroom door and we open the bedroom door expecting there to be a bedroom there and there's just nothing the whole side of the house is done so we're on a first floor and we're just looking out over Mosul 
And it was the weirdest experience because in the film, The Battle for Mosul, uh, that's where we start recording. Haith's camera is still working, so he hits record. And you just see us looking out over this decimated street over Mosul. Wow. Yeah. And uh, all three of us just went into shock. We just didn't didn't know how to process what we were staring at because we were expecting to walk into a bedroom. And um, the thing that brought us out of that shock was the snap of bullets and where we were standing, ISIS could obviously see us. So they were shooting at us and the bullets were snapping nearer and nearer. So we basically just slid down the front of this house into the street and then sort of all uh all hell broke loose for about 45 minutes and i remember not really being scared scared obviously i was scared but being sort of like pure adrenaline i need to do this i need to get out i need to try and do this until about 45 minutes later when my adrenaline started to turn off and then i suddenly became aware of how much pain i was in in certain places i put bandages on parts of my body and that i needed serious hospital treatment and we basically had a very small window where the Iraqi military sent in um, a medevac to get their guys out. And they said, you can go with them if you want, but if you're going, you've got to go now. It was a very difficult moment because um, one of my teammates wanted to stay, uh, which is sort of like the cardinal sin. Uh, and Abdullah and I needed to go to hospital. Uh, so we, we went to hospital and we got out and I remember the first time I was really frightened was being packed in this Humvee with tons of, um, wounded Iraqi soldiers. And there were so many of us, I was on top of a guy, there was a guy on top of me and we were just being driven out of the street. And I remember thinking, well, I'm, I, this, at this point for the first time in the whole experience, I have no control. You know, even when you're think you're going to be buried in a house you could still try and like move that brick or do something but at that moment i just knew if an isis truck bomb comes around the corner now i'm absolutely knackered and that was really terrifying and thankfully i made it to uh an aid station where the special forces would triage casualties that were coming off the front line and as soon as i got there a lot of my friends who were journalists uh were hanging around that area and uh, a friend of mine gareth just like got ready to photograph like a load of wounded guys coming in door opens i'm the second person pulled out the humvee and he's like oh my god josh which was a total blessing because it meant i for the first time had a phone all my gear had been gone the only thing that survived the explosion was my camera and my my knife um so that gave me a route to being able to sort of get myself out of there basically you know i could call people to sort of arrange an extraction and get myself to hospital and then does, I remember something. Go on, oh, sorry. Go on, sorry. No, well, I was just, just, I was just... <laughs> go on. You go. You go. You. I've talked a lot. Yeah. All, right. All right. All right. I was just going to say, does something like that change your perspective on everyday life? I mean, really, you should have died in that in that moment. I mean, it sounds like it anyway. Does it change how you think about life? Do you suffer from PTSD of some kind? Yeah, I mean, so uh, where to where to start with those? So, like, should I have died? Like, so I uh, when I got back to the UK, uh, origin uh, the, originally when I finally got back to the UK. Um, I was seen by a sort of uh, a military surgeon. He was an NHS doctor, but also worked in the military. And he was a blast injury specialist. And he explained to me, I think he was a blast dynamicist. I don't know if that's the thing. I believe that's what I remember him calling himself. And he explained to me the reason that I was not dead 
given my proximity to the bomb, and I'll send you a video of the bomb afterwards, um, was that uh, the blast wave where I was had to pass through an outside courtyard wall, go through the courtyard, pass through the front wall of a house, go through the front wall, pass through the back wall of the, the living room, then go down the corridor, then pass through another wall and then hit me. So by the time it hit me, that wave had gone through you know yeah. four or five walls the disadvantage of that is every wall it went through it picked up bits of house brick huh. and propelled it at me like a projectile so there's more uh house brick under my head than could ever be um removed basically they'd have to peel my scalp off i remember the, the doctor in england said look oh. there's no metal left there because they pulled that out in a rack um but the there's so much there don't worry about it. It will work its way out, and it does. It just comes out every now and again in little tiny clumps. But he said, you know, oh my god, yeah, it's, it doesn't hurt. It's just weird, <laughs> kind of probably quite gross <laughs> for people. Um, but I remember the uh, the doctor in hospital saying to me, "Don't worry about it. Your grandparents are full of shrapnel." And I was kind of a bit dosed up, but I was like, "Are you a descendant of Rambo? Because my grandparents are not full of shrapnel. I don't know what you're talking about, mate." But he was like, "You'll be <laughs> fine. Don't worry." In terms of like. Um, PTSD and things like that I take like sort of mental health extremely seriously because I do do a lot of work in war and conflict or difficult environments or upsetting environments and um, in order for that to be sustainable you really have to look after your mental health and friends of mine who I think are incredibly talented very smart who also do a lot of work in these environments who don't look after their mental health I've seen it kind of kill their careers and also have a negative impact on their personal lives as well i also make sure it's not the only thing i do so at this point i'll only go to conflict if it's really needed or if it's um an important story then i'm all in um in terms of ptsd from the event i think in the aftermath uh, yeah probably um, I remember being woken up in the middle of the night by, this only happened once, but by the sound of the bomb going off. It was like the perfect hot sweat, classic PTSD thing. So it's a lot of therapy to work through that. And um, I sort of built myself back up and then I did a filming trip in America for, for this project. And while I was there, I took myself to a gun range because I knew I would be going to Iraq in a couple of months later and I wanted to make sure that I'd been around the sound of gunfire again. And so did that. And so by the time I went back to Iraq and I went to Mosul, I was I was all good, to be honest with you. Okay. Um, well, good. Yeah. What was the yeah. other question? I can't remember. No, I don't, it's just it's just amazing how I think you become, I think doing any story, any kind of story, if you're doing it for a long time, you become a little bit desensitized to it. So, I mean, the way you describe some things there may be quite uh, nonchalantly, and I know you know it's not mm. nothing as well, but but just, yeah, so we were ambushed by ISIS at that point, and, uh, you know, oh, I picked up my camera instead of my life vest, stuff like that, which I think to other people, I mean, to you, I know you'd still know it's shocking as well, but I mean, to other people, it's really shocking, and I mean, I can't think of anything scarier than the idea of being anywhere near ISIS. So so what was it that got you? Because that's the one thing I think if they said to me, do you want to go and film something? And it's ISIS. That's the one thing I would go, no, not, I, that's the, I'm not doing that. I, I'm desperate for a commission, but I'm not going to do that. What was it that got you interested in the whole thing in the first place? And, and were you not too scared? 
I mean, there's there's tons of questions there. I suppose like the yeah. I tend to do that, by the way. Sorry, I, no, I no, 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 it's I good. Hide. I just wait. So <laughs> I made a film in East London Mosque where I was an assistant producer with a guy called Rob Leach years and years ago called Welcome to the Mosque. And while I was there, three girls from East London's uh, ran off to ISIS. The Bethel Green girls, Shamima Begum, would be the most famous of them. And I found myself in this mosque with those girls' families, and that threw me into a world of terrorism that would become become yeah. like my specialty. So I ended up coming to be able to speak to people with an ISIS or understand the dynamic of it. You know, coming to Monster has been years of learning and development and developing a specialty. In terms of like um, ISIS or any sort of hostile environment, I mean, embedding with Iraqi special forces is like a certain tier of um uh, deployment. Like, so lots of news networks or lots of, people will go and work in conflict zones but you can be in a conflict zone and you can be a mile from the front line you can be absolutely fine and completely safe as mad as that sounds um what we were deliberately tasked with doing was going and being embedded and when you're embedded by law you can be shot at because journalists can't be used as human shields so you have to accept that if you're moving with a military unit and they take contact you can legally be fired upon and so you go into that environment knowing that at some point you're going to you're going to take contact um so that takes a lot of preparation i would say one of the reasons that um i think probably a lot of people don't realize because i do this in a broadcast capacity to get me out of the door and to get me on the ground in a place like that we do such a rigorous uh risk assessment and planning process so my average risk assessment for a trip to Syria will be about 100 pages that I'll write myself. It won't be a template. It'll be something I'll write myself and it takes into account everything we can think of and what we call our actions on. Oh, if this happens, what do we do? If this happens, what do we do? How? What are the risks? What are the threats? What are our intelligence that we know about these things? And, and you just build this big plan. So by the time you get on the ground, yes, it is scary sometimes, but you've you've kind of spent so long thinking about it that you're sort of installed with a bit of confidence or this is how I find it, that I planned it to within an inch of its life. So when it does go all wrong, or if it does go all wrong, although that plan's going to go out the window, you've prepared for it. And then also, yeah, I suppose parts of it do sound nonchalant, but then also from having to tell this story since like November 2016 to present day, <laughs> you've told it a lot of times. And also um, I've just spent an awful long time in those environments now. So I probably am... Uh, not as uh, shocked by certain things anymore. I mean, I've just spent four years running around the round world trying to unpick a story of a woman who joined ISIS that involves everything mm. from the FBI through to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. So it's like, uh, my mind is probably pretty fried at this point, to be honest with you. <laughs> my sense of normality is gone. <laughs> yeah, it must be. I'm amazed by it, though. I, I really I really am. Yeah, I... I will actually say just one offshoot of the podcast is it kind of picks on what you're saying is that so many of my friends over the last four years, when I would try and tell them little things about what I was doing on this story, would be like, he's totally making this up. Like, there's no way this (laughs) thing is this. You're right, Josh. And what's been really validating about the podcast coming out, they'd be like, oh, we, we thought you were full of shit. Oh right, okay, you were you were actually doing that thing. Oh, okay, then fine, yeah. fair play. So it's kind of like rekindled some certain friendships, which has been really nice. And it's also allowed my family to understand why I've like basically just not turned up to any family gathering for four years. Um so 
so so that's that this is when it came out you mean so because they didn't believe you it sort of ruined friendships a little bit and now that this has all come out they they do yeah 100 percent. wow i mean because because i mean like who really is sat around on a friday night encrypted messaging isis apart from a terrorist or you know or who is like i try to think of an absurd example you know, I went to find a, a young boy called Aham in Iraq who had been owned by Sam. And I found myself in a situation where I'm sat there with the cutest kid alive and he's on the phone to Sam's sister, Laurie. And um, Aham suddenly remembers a song that Sam would sing to him while they were oh, being bombed sunshine. by the Americans. Yeah. And then I'm sat there being like, I'm with this kid. He's singing You Are My Sunshine to a woman on the other side of the world. It's the cutest and most harrowing thing I've ever encountered. <laughs> And I, how am I ever going to explain to somebody how this situation came about and what it felt like? So thankfully, because it's recorded, you people get a concept of like... And my best mate, to be honest with you, he did the best one. He was like... Because I did his, his best man speech halfway oh. through the series. Um, and he was like, I understand why you thought it was socially acceptable to put in certain things that you put in the best man speech that no normal human being would because of what was going on in your life at the time like it's sort of uh he he even gave a sort of greater insight into obviously what was what was going on and where my head was at wow wow i want to ask this this philosophical journalistic question are you ready for please it? do yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah it's it's a tough one that that and, and i only ask it because it's one that affects me a lot when you when you are a journalist i think you know obviously there, there's some level of activism there's some level of just you know journalism telling a story there's some level of wanting to show entertainment so what is going through your mind if a bad thing happens to somebody that you are becoming friendly with and interviewing and you're aware at the back of your mind that that's probably good for the podcast, but bad for the person. How how do you reconcile those two things? Is it does it ever come up for you? Do you mean in like a sort of interview context or talking about trauma? What what do you mean by like if a bad thing happens? Do you mean like somebody talking about their trauma or? Well, let's say you got a call halfway through and uh, something horrible had happened to somebody that you'd become close to, but you realised it made the 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 film or the podcast better. Do you ever have that? Or I, I have that when I'm interviewing someone, for example, and they're telling me a horrible story and then they say an even more horrible thing and then they start crying. Oh, right. So you're talking about the recounting sort of trauma. Well, it could be that as well, yeah. And, and I think, oh God, I feel terrible for this person. But then there's part of my brain, which I hate to admit, but I do want to admit publicly, there's part of me that's going, oh, it's good for the, it's good for the podcast or good for the documentary. So I, it's, uh, from my so, so just on interviewing people with trauma it's another thing where like it just takes um i try to put so much prep into it so i used to work in ngo sector before i was a journalist so you do lots of training and how to to do that and how to put in place for it so if you think in the podcast series uh episode 10 which is not yet out we will interview matthew now matthew's a 13 year old boy now who was with isis and mm. has had some harrowing events that kids of his age just don't go through or adults don't really go through to to come to the point of interviewing him took years of preparation quite literally years of consultation with child safeguarding experts engagement of independent psychologists planning with him planning with his father even just trying to work out if it was the right thing to do but he wanted to tell his story so then it became about how you do that for me if you think about other people there's suad in the film or or in the podcast and she's the young girl who was owned by sam uh has great feelings of affection for sam was bought by mm. sam as a slave but 
sees it as sort of Sam saving her while she was in in Sam's house and Raka she was systemically raped by Sam's husband um you know when Sawad is recounting her experience to me the most important thing for me is that the person I'm talking to is completely empowered and that they know that they are um in control and they take this conversation as far or as short as they want so for me if that means I can't film something or if that means which is more common upon reflection in the edit I don't put something in I'm totally mm. fine with that because I'd rather honor their trust than than betray that in in response to your other question like what do I do if somebody I'm working with is in trouble it depends what the situation is like you know when we engage with contributors the way I see it is we have a duty of care and an obligation to look after them so I'm still yeah. in contact with people I spoke, I filmed with years ago. Um, and even in a personal capacity, if if I can help, I will. I'm not always able to. I mean, I had a, a guy I filmed with in 2014 get in contact not so long ago and his son had been um, badly burnt and was mm. on the verge of, of dying. Had huge burns all over his body from boiling water. And was stuck inside a refugee camp and through politics they wouldn't let him out and we were able to get a fixer to go and release him and take him to a hospital and really thankfully it saved his life so my part of that was to find somebody on the ground who could assist and, and do that and then the person on the ground went and saved this kid's life so i just think you have an obligation to these people because they're sharing their trauma yeah. that was such a long-winded answer no it wasn't it was a beautiful answer it was really good hopefully that helps the, re- <laughs> the reason i i've i've found myself i've stayed up at night thinking about it because i mem- i had a film that was so important to me to get out onto bbc mm. because because that was the start of my career it was so important yeah, yeah, yeah and when it was going out uh we did all the legal stuff it was like a minute you know it's mad all the legal stuff it was so but, much so just to pick up on what you're saying there i think what you're talking about here is is a really good point and you should talk more about it is like just how hard it is to even get a film on telly that all the other stuff the legal the ed poll that you're talking about it's hard isn't it oh it was impossible and then we finally got it and so it was it was literally two or three like what you're saying it consumed three four years of my life uh mm. we went and filmed it on our own as well well all of it on our own and then we got got a, a production company to help us with post-production so it was years of our lives got the legal done just by the skin of our teeth because mm. the legal was difficult because we were accusing a, a priest of a lot of stuff and we had to send mm. him all the stuff and all this stuff and right at the last minute they were like okay all we have to do now is the duty of care stuff that the bbc do which means uh, andrew you've i've done a third person thing i like it go roll with it roll with it <laughs> i do it all the time i'm quoting it aren't i I'm, qu- I'm quoting them talking about me so they said andrew so that people know i'm talking about me, that um you've of course got to go back out to argentina and uh check that the the woman at the center of the whole story who had been very vulnerable and everything is okay for the story to go out because they'd all signed release forms of course and this, but this was now years later. She was mm. she'd been a seventeen year old girl. She's now like twenty or something, and she wants to live her life. Does she want a film on the BBC about all this time? So I was going out there the whole time, and in my head, I'm thinking, you know, what is my role? Because am I somebody who wanted to help her, which I mm. felt that I was. I wanted to tell myself that that's why I wanted to make the film because she was being taken advantage of by a priest, or was I somebody who was actually quite selfish and wanted my film to go out? So I found myself in these like really like I was really conflicted. And I went and spoke to her. And to be honest, I did get the impression 
she might have she could just as easily have said don't actually i don't want it out she was just not that interested or bothered so i i found myself being quite uh, manipulative maybe in the way i said it because mm. i was just well not manipulative but i was being very you felt the pressure of having to complete a film but then also yeah. you feel the pressure of trying to be a human being and be respectful yeah. And I thought, what is my role then? And is it just that I want entertainment and I want to have a career and stuff like that? Which are fine things to to, to want, right? It's fine for you to want to to have a career and, and do these things. Um, I I feel lucky that I started in this in the NGO sector, and that gives you a slightly different discipline. But I think what I just what I decided a long time ago was that I would surrender myself to the idea that. Um, at the end of the day, if somebody doesn't want to do it, then fine. Because the idea of if they do do it and they have a second thought or if they they suddenly they actually didn't, the ramifications of that are far worse for them than than just saying no. So I think it's it's an interesting thing. Consent is what you're we're, we're talking about now and, and the process of mm. gaining consent is yeah, yeah. is such a long rooted thing a very dear friend of mine is filming a film at the moment a brilliant series and she's just had two contributors pull out uh, they're mentally um uh vulnerable I don't know what the word is either right yes yeah the yeah they're, they're vulnerable contributors sure. and for her as the filmmaker it's like oh my god this is so it's the last minute it was a brilliant story it was going to do a great public service thing of highlighting these mental health issues oh the anger of it the annoyance what gets her over that is then being like well fundamentally they're mentally vulnerable and i'm just gonna have to let go of it and i think that's the difficult transition and the quicker you can move yourself into the point of oh fuck all right it's the best thing for you and that's what the most important thing is here that sort of easier it is for you um there's always a way to fix things as well always a hundred percent it might not be the way that you intended. In our film, I'm not sure we'd have. I'm not sure we'd have had a film without her because it was without just her. all about her being uh, manipulated by the priest, and it would have just without that. You know, he was telling her she was uh, she was schizophrenic and wow. uh, bulimic and anorexic, and she, he was telling her that she had a demon inside her, and she Excellent. was our centre. We had other stories, but she was the centre. Horrific. Oh man, yeah, it was awful. How so. did you find dealing with that? So just uh, like, how did you? Because also the other part of this as well, I would imagine for you is that that must have taken a toll on you mentally, listening mm. to that, engaging with that, listening to the abuse that she's she's going through. I mean, how did you deal with that? So th- I, I guess that's why I asked you the question, because it is something I've struggled with for a long time, and it's thinking, what is my role? What am I doing here? Why am I here? And I think, mm. I do believe that there's no there's no real unselfish act, and I don't think that's, I don't think that's a problem. We can still do things that help other people and also help ourselves in some way, make us feel good about ourselves. And it was, that's a funny thing because the first exorcism, we we saw a few exorcisms and we thought this was going to be a funny Louis Theroux kind of thing because Mm. exorcism sounds funny and Vice have done it a few times where it's quite funny and silly Mm. because you don't get to know the characters. So we did this where I stood there and I got involved like, like Theroux would have done or whoever. And I was ringing the bells to sort of ward off the demon or the devil inside her. And this woman on the floor wasn't the main character. She she was sc- she was screaming for an hour on the floor, in all sorts of positions. Obviously, I never believed in anything paranormal, but she was so vulnerable and she mm. was so, in such a state. 
And I was instantly just horrified, terrified. I thought I shouldn't be here. And we've got, you know, my friend's got a camera in her face and I'm ringing bells thinking this is going to be funny. So it instantly hit us. And we, I think we try and get that across as well because at the beginning of that film, we are a bit funny and glib and silly. And suddenly it hits us and we're like, this is pretty, this is pretty intense. But the whole while there was something going on in my head of like, well, yeah, why am I doing this? Is this for me? Is this for mm. them? And then of course that feeling when it felt like a contributor might pull out. But you know the feeling and it's great. That's why I want to speak to you as well. It's great because you're somebody who knows that feeling of speaking to these people and you're feeling their pain and you're taking their pain on all the time. And then I found myself that that conflicted feeling I've had at the back of my head, which was just, uh, yeah, why am I doing this? Is this selfish of me to be in their most vulnerable vulnerable moment filming it and that kind of thing? So. But but this is the wrestle we all have, isn't it? I mean, it, it it is. I think you keep touching upon a thing of like, is this right for me to doing this? Isn't this right for me doing this? You know, all of these things are very difficult things to to battle through. And I think it's about understanding what your intentions are and making sure your intentions aren't actually ultimately going to put people in a vulnerable position. I mean, one of the things that my pet hates is just to bring it back to conflict is. Um, it's a choice for me to go to a conflict zone. Nobody's forcing me to do it. And that is fundamentally different to somebody who lives there. Like we get to step in and out of these realities and we should not ever um, delude ourselves that that's not a privilege and a very uh, unique position to be in. And it, we are not the same. I got blown up on a street with a load of people who lived there. My experience is different to the people whose lives that bomb destroyed. You know, it's a very different thing. Different to most people still, though. There are, there are levels, aren't there? Because, I mean, I, I still i am amazed by what you've done. I, Thank you. There's not much you can you can say. You can, yeah, just, I, I don't know what you can say when I keep saying I'm amazed. I'm amazed. I'm amazed by you. Just, Thank I you. I, my ego is massive. I, I do have to say, I've got the, the editor of PBS Frontline is, is repeatedly calling me. So I might have to jump off in a minute and then maybe pick okay. up with you later. Yeah, sorry, I said it would be an hour, didn't I? Uh, no, I don't know why. It's it's He's probably asking me um, why I've written something rightly. I've probably okay. made a mistake you, and he's, thank God, caught it. <laughs> Do you want to grab him then and then maybe we can pop on in a, in a bit? Yeah, I don't know how long it will be. It could turn into one of these things where it might be a couple of hours. So what okay, do you want to do? Okay. Do you want to talk a bit more, like another 10 minutes and then pick up? Or do you want to... Let's, yeah, maybe because the only worry I've got is I haven't actually asked you anything about the, the podcast, <laughs> and which is what we were here for, wasn't it? We got chatting though, um, which is what I always do on this thing as well. Okay, so should we do what, 10, 15 minutes and then... Or if you've got go more time seat. tomorrow. Yeah, we could do that as well. I mean, I don't usually like to do more than another 10, 15 minutes anyway, because I don't have time to edit more than that to be like, you know, every week. Uh... I reckon we can do this in 15 minutes. Go for it. Go for it. I've got I've got a thing called Patreon, right? People mm. are members of the podcast and stuff, and it means that they can ask uh, a question sometimes if they're the first person who... Oh, I love these. Yeah, exactly. So this one is for Matt, right? Hi, Matt. He doesn't Matt. want me to say his last name. Yeah, he says... Elusive Matt. Elusive Matt. <laughs> do you know what I've realised? You what? have... Your voice is yeah. very similar to a man's David surname David. I won't get. No, Theo van der but I can't say his surname. It's the style. What, Raphael van der Vaart? No, it's Teo. Oh, there goes Mike. He's the style editor of GQ. A very lovely man, but you have a very similar voice. You're his voice twin. Really? That's amazing. I'm going to look him up. That He must sound great. <laughs> he does. He does. Compliment. <laughs> I could never be a GQ anything. I don't have any. Even what you've got now is much more stylish. Look at that. You've got the hat. It's my girlfriend's on. hat that I've put it's on because hat. she tried to give me a lockdown haircut 
and shaved a bowl patch into the back of my head. And to be honest, it's just terrible. So we'll just move on from that. So I'm wearing a pink bobble hat. (laughs) We've been having discussions every day with my girlfriend about whether to do it. Because this this is not how I normally look. This is just ridiculous. But, you know, shaved as well. Look at that. Shaved. Yeah, like it. Clean shaven. Yep. Never had a beard like this. You don't have a beard. You've got designer stubble. No, but you, I'm saying I usually have a beard. I oh, usually you have, have a beard. Got. I thought you said... Oh, sorry. I'm confused. I was like, the guy's telling me he's got a beard. He doesn't have a beard. <laughs> I've, I've shaved it for like the first time. Because yeah. I never used to do it, but my girlfriend doesn't like the beard. She's decided after six years. So. All right. Well, do as you told. Anyway, what's Matt said? Matt has said... Hi, Josh and Andrew. Josh, I'm really, really enjoying your podcast series. Andrew, meals not so much. Um, <laughs> in the series... Josh, it sounded like Samantha's fairly comfortable when you were asking her slightly trickier questions. Did it feel like that at the time when you challenged her version of events, when you kind of challenged the truthfulness of her story? I was wondering if that relationship was always amicable between you or did you ever feel like if you probe too much, you might lose the access? Uh, I'd be really interested to know. Uh, Andrew, I was joking. I love this podcast. Uh, thanks, Matt. Lovely words. Glad you like his podcast as well. Uh, the yes, uh, that was hell. Like managing the relationship with Sam was a constant dance, particularly because the first time I interviewed her in Kurdish custody in Syria, it was very difficult for me to ask her certain questions without putting her at risk because they would perceive those questions related to information I had about Sam that they didn't. And I so there was a big dance around uh that i actually can't even get into some of the risks that would have been posed to sam but it meant that interview was done in a very soft manner in the first instance because it was just like there is no scenario where it is worth putting these kids at risk and putting sam at risk um and then you know when i was asking her some of the more challenging questions and going to town on her it wasn't going to town on her sound so bad when i was like really (laughs) really like pushing her on her lies when I've been like this person has seriously lied for a very long time in some areas um it did feel uncomfortable because regardless of the human being you don't want them to suffer or be upset because of your questioning but fundamentally you know she is somebody that has supported terrorism and uh put her kids at risk and has sold me a story that isn't completely true. So it kind of just became a point of this is uncomfortable for me, but I have to do it. It's my job. You've become friends with her, I presume, by this point. Well, like, I, friend, like, uh, like, like, I get on with her. Like, we have a conversation. I would say that's different to like being a friend, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, I find that difficult. I find that difficult. I I did a film with a, a woman who's the the pro life woman in in Argentina. Yeah. She has like she's called the crazy baby lady, and she has these little little fetuses and stuff. And I told her I was neutral because I was I thought of myself as neutral, but obviously I was I was I'm personally quite pro choice and all of this. And at the end, she said to me, she called me a few days after we finished interviewing, and she said, "People send me pictures of their abortions every day to to get me, you know, but nothing's hurt as much as your betrayal, Andrew, ever." Oh wow. Yeah, weeks, weeks. I was gutted, and then I forgot, and I thought I've got a great film. I don't care. But for weeks, I was really. Did you? Did you not? I mean, how, I was always wondering. We hear snippets of you talking to Samantha on the phone and stuff, and you've ha- you've been challenging. You're you're basically having a bit of an argument almost. A sort of, 
and then and then it goes to the next scene. But how does it end? How does the phone call end? Are you going, oh, well, well, thank you. See you later. Or what, what do you well, say to Well, I'll, I'll, I'll finish the interview. And then typically I will say, is there anything you want to say to me? Or I will say, are you okay? Do you want to talk? Because fundamentally, um, as strange as it may sound, I still have a duty of care to Sam. Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, I, I, in any interview I've ever done, I never just, all right, f- uh, run run for my life. It's always afterwards there's a period of, um, of cool down that, that can actually be more uncomfortable sometimes than the interview itself or in the first instance. And particularly actually with people who are suffering with trauma or vulnerable, uh, any sort of vulnerability, you know, I might do interviews with them over days um, to make it comfortable for them. We might spend, you know, days together before I record a thing. Um, it's funny because these interviews are often such a small part of, everything that went on around it. Aham was interviewed over two days. Suad was interviewed over uh, two days. Um, Matthew was two years in the making. Suad said um, that, that that Samantha treated her quite well. Mm. So I was trying to figure it out, and I do this, and I think we all do this. We try to put everybody into a box while we're listening. So we're like, wow, she's a psychopath. He's a narcissist and all that kind of thing. So my head's going, wow, she's a psychopath. Look at how she lies. And she doesn't mm. seem to react how you might expect to all these serious things. Although that's been a mistake in the past when you look at like Amanda Knox, for example, who mm. seemed to not have committed a crime, but she was suspected because she just didn't react the way we expect people to react. Mm. Um, and Suad sort of seemed to suggest she had been quite nice with her and other people at that time did so i thought she can't be a psychopath because it would have been so easy for her to mistreat these people where, where do, do you have a, a a full idea of what's going on with her yeah i think i think look the podcast highlights that it's impossible to put sam in a box but i often think it's impossible to put anyone in a box and people are lots of different shades of gray and sam um has made some really bad decisions that have had some really nasty consequences for a lot of people but she's also been I, I believe the the you know she has survived really horrific domestic abuse and she's had some sort of horrible things happen to her. So there is no simple thing to say about her either way or the other. I think in Suad's case, I think it's really important to respect the way that Suad feels about the situation, no matter how unexpected it is. And I also think, um, you know, if you imagine being her, you're in a slave market in Raqqa. You've been sold between ISIS fighter after ISIS fighter and this woman comes up and shows you kindness and takes you home, gives you a room and puts you in a position where you are um, cared for to some degree or protected compared to what you've been and keeps you alive for two years and then helps you escape. You know, I can see why she would end up feeling some some feelings of, of care towards Sam. But I do think there is an important distinction to acknowledge. And that is Suad did not choose to be with Sam. Suad was not with Sam by choice. She was there because Sam bought her. Now, that may have kept her alive, but it's an important distinction in their friendship. Why do you think Samantha went to ISIS? I think it's very hard to say. I don't think, I mean, I do my sort of summation in, in episode nine. I'd urge people to listen to the end of episode nine because I'll never do it as articulately, articulately as that again. But I think we don't know that she definitely did. We know she supported ISIS. We know that she knew the brothers were going. I think there's a scenario where she was in a coercive controlling relationship 
and she ended up stuck in something she couldn't get out of. I think there's a scenario that perhaps she went along for the excitement of it and um, didn't like the reality. I think there's a scenario where she wanted her husband and brother-in-law to go and that she would escape at the last minute and she'd be free of them. All of these seemingly contradictory things can be true with Sam. It's always a bit of a nerve-wracking moment when I'm waiting on Zoom to talk to someone because you never know what that person's going to be like in real life. And they do say, never meet your heroes. So in terms of what you might think about someone whose work you enjoy, everything is subject to change within a few seconds or maybe minutes of them appearing in front of you on the screen. And it was such a relief to find the person staring back at me in this episode to be, if I may be so bold, somewhat similar to me. Don't get me wrong, I was talking to a far more intrepid and daring journalist than me, but one who perhaps didn't take himself too seriously and and could joke around despite the horrors he'd been through. And that was really nice. It was really nice and fun to chat with Joshua, and I'm looking forward to seeing what he does next and maybe getting him back on the podcast in the future. Thanks, Matt, for the question. A great one it was too. You can ask your own question by signing up to patreon.com slash andrewgold, where you'll also get bonus material and all sorts of other perks. Follow me on andrewgold underscore OK on Twitter and Instagram for video clips, which you can also find on YouTube by searching this podcast name. Remember, Thursday at 8pm GMT is our chat room. You don't need to sign up or download anything. Just type in a username and, and come along. Uh, You can be anonymous if you want. Next week, I've got Andrew Doyle on the show, the man behind the comical political fictional creations of both Jonathan Pye and Titania McGrath, uh, who's very big on Twitter. Look them up if you don't know who they are. You might find them funny and interesting. And get hold of Andrew Doyle's brilliant new book, Free Speech, which is basically a defense of free speech against what he sees as a rising tide of authoritarianism on the left. Please remember also to review this show, nicely, hopefully, on Apple Podcasts. I am delighted to say I had loads this week, so do forgive me for rushing through them a bit. And and sorry I haven't got round to all of them, but please keep writing them in as it makes a huge difference to the kinds of big guests that I can attract because they check the reviews to see if it's worth their time coming on. And I must admit, I do the same thing when other podcasters ask me to come on their show. Landale or Yandel, depending on whether the L at the beginning is a, a, a lowercase L or an uppercase I. Landale or Yandel uh, wrote, I discovered Andrew's podcast in its infancy and have loved tuning in every week. It has brightened up the tedium of endless lockdowns. Andrew's guests are consistently fascinating and his informal, empathetic and accessible style make you feel like you are listening to a friend. Thanks, Andrew. I have shared this channel with many friends. Thanks for doing that, Landale or Yandale. Thank you so much for the kind words. And I love that you have been there since the beginning. It means a lot. Uh, Guna Wolf wrote a gold brackets un shower, a golden shower, uh, playing on my surname of stories and information. Um, Guna, he actually got in touch on Instagram, which was very nice. And he wrote fascinating content and a great variety of guests. Andrew is genuinely helping me through winter days in my freezing cold workshop. And there is a nice image of Guna Wolf with tea or something, keeping him warm, listening to the podcast. 
in his workshop, which I've seen on on Instagram and it looks really great. He sort of put it together himself, which is pretty impressive. Something I could never do. Here's one from SJ1LJ1. I'm big into podcasts and stumbled across this one recently by chance. It's now firmly in my regular listens. It has an excellent combination of fascinating guests coupled together with Andrew's thoughtful interviewing style that really seems to bring out the interesting issues well. Thank you very much, SJ1LJ1. Surely at this point, the only people listening are people who are on a long walk and it's more effort to reach into your pocket and actually take the phone out and pause it it's actually more effort. You might as well just leave it on, hoping that this interminable podcast will come to an end. Uh, only a couple more reviews to go. Jack Hawk wrote, Lucy Edwards. That's that's a reference to Lucy Edwards, of course, who was the, the first ever blind presenter for Radio 1, who was on this podcast a couple of months ago. And Jack Hawk wrote, one of the first podcasts I came across by accident. Loved listening to this articulate lady at 3am one morning. So remember, that's Lucy Edwards. That was just a, a couple months ago. You can find that somewhere in the back catalogue. And finally, finally, Jen Peters, 86, probably three years older than me because I'm 89, unless unless Jen is actually 86, um, which is just as possible. You're going to hear about things that aren't the norm in terms of content and issues. I can't get enough. My favourite so far was The Coffin Confessor. Love, love this podcast. You can learn much, and it can be interesting conversation starters for sure. Thank you, Jen. That is a lovely thing to hear. And thank you, everyone, for listening this far. As I say, it's going to be a relief now when I stop talking because you don't have to turn your phone off anymore. It's coming to the end, I promise. But do remember about patreon.com slash andrewgold. Find Joshua Baker on Twitter, Josh Baker Film, andrewgold underscore ok on Twitter and Instagram, and get on Discord on Thursday, 8 p.m., in the UK and whatever other time we're going to have a little chat and it'd be great I really want to get to know a lot of you so you know please do come to that um and yeah the link will be in the show notes and see you next week 